Hey, welcome to our worship service today. I'm glad you've tuned in. We're meeting all over Northern Virginia as a church distributed. I hope the service has been meaning for you so far. Once again, this type of service gives us a small taste of how the church has worshiped from house to house for much of church history. Before I start, please turn in your Bibles to our text for today, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, and put me on pause while you go ahead and read that passage. Hey, welcome back. We're glad you're here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand. Life is strange right now, and it looks like it's going to get more difficult before it gets better. We live in a time of fear and confusion, not knowing what another day will bring. We need Jesus. So help us to see Jesus today. Thank you that once again we're learning from Mark, a follower of Jesus, as he brings us the good news of the life of Christ. Help us to obey your word, worship you, and be patient with all. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, change our minds, change our hearts to be more like your Son. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. A few days ago, Dr. Mike Kruger of RTS Charlotte wrote an insightful article about this phrase, you do you. Let me share it with you because there's probably not another phrase that better captures our current cultural moment. Back in 2015, Colson Whitehead, a writer for the New York Times Magazine, lamented this phrase. He argued that it perfectly captures our narcissistic culture, and it's hard to disagree with that. You do you embodies our culture's commitment to personal fulfillment, self-actualization, and the dismissal of any truth claims outside of ourselves. It means we get to create our own realities, our own right and wrong, and more importantly, our own meaning. And if we're the creators of our own little worlds, then we're also our own little gods. And no one gets to tell a god what to do. We decide for ourselves. Perhaps it's no surprise, then, that the selfie is our world's favorite art form. And I understand the irony of doing that on a video or saying that on a video. After all, the thing we want to celebrate is us. So how does a you-do-you culture handle something like the coronavirus? Prior generations, no doubt, would have turned to science as the great solution. Armed with ever more impressive technological advancements, we were told our potential for solving the world's problems were essentially limitless. In the case of coronavirus, however, the god of science doesn't seem so omnipotent after all. Maybe there'll be a vaccine at some point in the future, but for now, well, we're on our own. So what can be done, at least on a human level, to stop the virus? Well, that's where we come to the great irony of our current situation. We can only stop the virus by doing what is best for others, not just what is best for ourselves. The virus will be curbed when people exemplify a spirit of self-sacrifice, a posture of self-denial. We must limit our travel, limit our social contact, even limit our fun so the virus won't spread. And that requires a worldview that gives us a reason 
to deny ourselves, a reason to think more highly of others. In other words, we need a worldview that is more than us. So in short, you do you won't work. In fact, you might argue that our cultural decline over the last 50 some years has made us exceptionally vulnerable to something like the coronavirus. The problem isn't that we're unprepared scientifically. The problem is that we're unprepared morally. A quick reflection of how people are behaving in the midst of this tragedy just bears this out. A man flew from New York to Florida knowing he had symptoms of coronavirus, and while awaiting the results, he got on the plane, and he found out his test was positive while he was on the flight. Later on, JetBlue banned him for life. Another man works for Dartmouth Medical Center, had symptoms, was told to self-quarantine, but instead decided to go party with Dartmouth students, some of whom were later infected. A man in Missouri was told to quarantine with symptoms, but instead he opted to take his daughter to the school dance, exposing dozens of students. Perhaps most disturbingly is the recent behavior of some college students over spring break. Thinking that young people are least affected by the virus, that's now been proven not to be true. Some students decided just to party on, defying the orders to stay away from large crowds. And with a remarkable level of unawareness and a callous disregard for the good of others, one spring breaker told NBC News, if I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Whatever happens, happens. In other words, I'm just going to do me and you do you. Now, can you imagine going to the beach on spring break and getting the virus but not knowing it or not showing symptoms because you're young and in good health, but then bringing it home where it infects and kills your grandparents? You have to carry that for the rest of your life. And here's the point. Nothing tests the validity of a worldview like tragedy and suffering. And the coronavirus, as awful and terrible as it is, has done at least one good thing. Namely, it's exposed our culture's commitment to relativism. And it's exposed it for what it really is, an unworkable and unsustainable worldview. Even our founding fathers understood that this country would only survive if it had a moral core centered on God. John Adams famously observed, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Well, we now have a country that has largely abandoned a moral and religious foundation of self-sacrifice and of service to others, and so the inadequacy of our system has now been laid bare. But there's always hope. Revival rarely comes in good times. It often comes in times of need, in times of want, in times of hardship. It's when our earthly comforts and securities have been taken away that we're willing to turn again to the good news of the gospel, which at its heart is about a man who laid down his life for the good of others. If the first Adam embodied the you-do-you culture, the second Adam, Jesus, embodies the you-serve-others culture. After all, it was Jesus who said at the end of today's chapter, Mark 9, 35, 
If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The you-do-you worldview may first appear to be life-giving when actually it's life-taking. In contrast, the Christian worldview may first appear to be life-taking when actually it's life-giving. Ironically, then, it's in the midst of a tragedy like the coronavirus that Jesus' words from last Sunday ring most true. Mark 8.35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So what does all this have to do with today's passage? Well, quite a bit, because in this passage, Mark 9, verses 2 through 13, we're going to get the motivation to follow Christ even at the expense of ourselves. We're now in the weeks leading up to Easter, both literally, as Easter's three weeks away, but also here in the book of Mark. We're looking at Christ and some key episodes in his life, and today we've come to a very famous and very unique passage called the Transfiguration. There's nothing quite like it in the Bible. I'm not really sure there's anything quite like it in ancient literature or in any literature, for that matter. It's here to teach us, of course, or else it wouldn't be in the Bible. So, what is it here to teach us about? Several things. I'm not going to go through the text verse by verse, as I normally do, but I'm going to take the passage as a whole and pick out three main points for us to consider. But before we start, you need to know that in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus' life get darker and darker. In this passage, as he's coming down the mountain, the disciples ask him about the prophecy that there would be a second Elijah who would be a forerunner to the Messiah. What about him? Jesus says, yes, John the Baptist is that second Elijah. They killed him, and they're going to kill me. You see, things are getting darker and darker, and yet, for one moment on the mountain, a shutter opens, and then there's light, and then it goes dark again. So what is this here to tell us? Well, first of all, the transfiguration tells us who he is, who he is. Now, if you've downloaded the sermon outline, uh, which you can from our website, uh, you can follow along like you normally do. And so who he is would be the first blank uh, in your outline. Now, when God was leading the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, what did he use to demonstrate his presence? If you remember from our time in the book of Exodus, all the way back in 2015, he took the form of a glory cloud, the Shekinah glory, a cloud filled with bright light. And in the daytime when the sun was out, it looked pretty much like a cloud, but it was really bright. But at night when the sun was gone, it looked like a pillar of fire, and it went before the children of Israel. So cloud by day, fire by night. And it symbolized God's presence with his people. When this glory cloud came down on Mount Sinai, the mountain shook, and there was the voice of God, and there was fire, and there was clouds, and anyone who touched the mountain died. And when Moses asked God to get a glimpse of him inside the cloud, God said, no, it'll kill you. Well, now it's centuries later. What do we see? We're on a mountain again, verse 2. There's the voice of God, verse 7. There's Moses, verse 4, and Elijah, who also saw the glory of God on a mountain in 1 Kings 19. Most of all, we see here in verse 3, 
the glory of God is radiant. So what's different about this account from the account in Exodus? Because there's something very different. The incomparable glory of God is radiating from a person now. Not a cloud, but from Jesus Christ himself. Verses 2 and 3 say, And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In the same account in Matthew we read, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That's astounding. The glory of God, the radiant light, is coming straight from Jesus. When Moses came off Mount Sinai, his face continued to shine, but it was the reflected glory of what he'd seen. Sorry, sort of um, like how the moon reflects the sun. But now we're told Jesus is the sun. This is depicting in story form something the book of Hebrews says explicitly. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That means that Jesus Christ is the perfect expression of the overwhelmingly powerful, unsurpassingly beautiful, vitally important glory of God. Jesus is the glory cloud. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory in human form. This glory is in, now in human form and he's the exact representation of God's nature. There's no other way to see the glory of God that surpasses what we see in Christ. I don't know how much stronger the Bible can be in getting across the idea that Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. He's not one more prophet pointing to God. He is the glorious God to whom Moses and Elijah and all the other prophets pointed. So what does that mean? Well, to be blunt, I think it means that the glory of God is to be our primary motivation for the Christian life. After all, what does the catechism teach us? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if Jesus is the exact imprint of the glory of God, then Jesus Christ himself becomes our primary motivation to live the Christian life. He becomes what's most important to us. Now, to a you-do-you culture, that just sounds weird. I mean, today, most people will tell you, you need to figure out your passions. You need to figure out what your dreams are. You need to bring your life in line with that and get in sync with that. What is it that you really want? What are your real passions and dreams? What are your capacities? Live for that. Now, do you see how revolutionary Christianity is? Christianity says ultimate reality is not some abstract dream you have to contemplate or some passion that you have to work hard to line your life up with. Well, the gospel tells us that ultimate reality is now found in a person. The ultimate reality is a person that you can know, a person you can love and who can love you, who can adore and delight in. It's a love relationship. And for the world of Moses' day, and the world of Jesus' day, and the world of our day, that completely redefines salvation. It completely redefines how we find our purpose in life or how we find meaning in life. The glory of Christ changes everything. Because Jesus Christ is not just a good guy. 
He's not just somebody who's sort of glorious or who just points to glory. He is the glory of God. That means he's our ultimate reality. The transfiguration shows us the greatness of who he is. But it doesn't stop there. Because the transfiguration tells us what he does. The transfiguration tells us what he does. It shows us. I already said that when the glory of God appeared in the Old Testament, when it came down on Mount Sinai, if anybody came into contact with it, it killed them. When we hear about that today, it might offend us or confuse us. We don't like such harsh warnings. But think about it like this. If you were to look directly into the sun for a really long time without blinking, it would burn your eyes out. It would destroy your sight because of the luminosity, the brightness, the intensity of the sun is far too great for your eyes to bear. And you could say, I am so offended by that idea. Well, you shouldn't be offended. It's a physical law. The brightness of the sun is too great for your eyes to bear. Nothing personal. It's just physics. And we're being told here in Mark 9, that's true on a spiritual level as well. Let me give you another example. <coughs> you think you're smart until you come into the presence of somebody who's way smarter than you are, or maybe even way smarter than you'll ever be. And yet, before you met that person, you thought of yourself as pretty smart. But then you met this genius. And let me tell you, it's not an inspiring feeling. It's true for spirituality, too. You think you're a pretty spiritual person. You pray, you read the Bible, certainly more than those lazy people sitting in front of you at church. You got this. You're fairly spiritual. But then you meet this old guy, very quiet. And you take him out to lunch. And you ask him to say the blessing. And he prays in a way that humbles you. He prays like he knows God intimately. And you're sitting there thinking, this guy knows Jesus way better than I do. And now you're wondering if you're even saved. Hopefully now you can relate to the disciples here. They're not only in the presence of Jesus, but suddenly they're blinded by the transfiguration of Christ. Suddenly, the glory of God shines forth from Jesus in unsurpassed radiance. This blinding light hits them. And Peter blurts something out because he has to say something. But we're told what's really going on in verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I mean, look at other times in the Bible when God just shows up. When Isaiah begins to get in the presence of God in Isaiah 6, what's he say? Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Job gets into the presence of God, he's not really seeing his glory, but he's in the whirlwind. He just gets close. You remember what he says, Job 42, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Anybody who gets anywhere close to the presence of God 
begins to feel the moral weight because we're sinners, we're flawed, we're finite. The infinity and glory and holiness of God, our lives can't bear the weight of his glory. It's as simple as that, and yet we were originally created to see him and know him and see his beauty and glory, but we can't because of sin. That's the reason the tabernacle was built. Remember in the Old Testament, tabernacle was this giant tent. God said, I want to dwell in the midst of my people, but I don't want to kill them. So they built the tabernacle. It's this huge tent, and in the center is a small tent, the Holy of Holies, in which the glory cloud dwelt. But it was safe. It was shielded. It was there behind a veil. And outside were all the outer courts where most of the people were and where there was sacrifices and altars and priests doing all the priest things. So what was the tabernacle actually for? It was a defense against God, a shield against glory, a protection from the glory of God. You're not going to understand Peter's response to this amazing event unless you see that. In verse 5, when Peter begins to see the intense radiance, what does he say? Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The Greek word for tent here is the same as the Hebrew word for tabernacle. Peter is saying, I'll put up three tabernacles. He's not saying we need shelter. He's not saying this is great, let's just stay here. He's saying we need to build tabernacles. We need protection. The glory is too much for us. And then I think the very thing that he's the most afraid of happens. If you know the Bible well, you'll realize one of the most astounding statements comes in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Remember, Moses had said, God, can I look inside the glory cloud? And God said, no, it'll kill you. But now it's on them. It's around them. It's enveloped them. It overshadows them. And the voice of God comes out of the cloud. That's why verse 6 says they're terrified. Of course they're terrified. They thought they were going to die. So what happens? Well, they didn't die. Let me say that again. They didn't die. Why not? This is what's so astounding about this text. Why not? The answer is right there. When they opened their eyes, they probably had their eyes closed in just sheer fright. And when they opened them, all they saw was Jesus. That's the answer. In Matthew 27, <coughs> when Christ died on the cross, it says the veil in the temple, the, which is a permanent tabernacle, was ripped from top to bottom. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he was the sacrifice. He was the priest. He was the temple itself. He said as much in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. How can Jesus call himself the temple? Because he is the one who shields you from the glory of God. Because through his sacrifice, he reconciles you to God. He pays for your sin. So now the very glory that used to be fatal can come into your life. And that's why the Bible says you're now a temple of the Holy Spirit. All because of what Jesus has done. And what did he do? It's easy to say he died on the cross. That's true. But more than that. He gave up his glory. 
The whole point of the transfiguration is to show us that Jesus is this glorious being, but who in Philippians 2 we're told, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself of his glory. The transfiguration is showing us that. Jesus gave up the beauty of his glory. He gave up the impressiveness of his glory. He gave up the power of his glory. He gave up the invulnerability of his glory. He is killable now. Glory, beauty, power, immensity, it's all gone. It's been set aside. It's been given up. Christ gave up his glory. Why? Well, before Jesus goes to the cross, he says two things in the Gospel of John in John 17. First, he says in John 17, 5, <coughs> And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the transfiguration glory. And then he says, John 17, 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. He gave up his beauty so we could get it. He gave up his perfection, gave up his glory so we could receive it. So glory could come into our lives. So God could make us beautiful, make us pure, make us glorious, make us perfect. He gave up his glory so we could get it. Just look at Jesus. And you can do that now. You can look at his glory because his death keeps us from dying. That's what Jesus has done. The transfiguration shows us the greatness of who he is. And it shows us the greatness of what he's done. But then the transfiguration tells us how we respond. How we respond. How should we respond? Well, I'm going to suggest three ways. <coughs> if this is all true, there's three ways you should respond. First, obey, because he's the Lord of glory. Second, worship, because he's the Lord of glory. And third, be patient, because he's the Lord of glory. And there's more than meets the eye. First of all, obey. If Jesus Christ really is the very glory of God, not just a nice guy, one of the things the word glory means is importance. He must be all important. The New Testament scholar, Dr. N.T. Wright, I don't agree with everything he says, but some of what he says is really good, and this is one of them. He wrote, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. And most of us, unable to quote, cope with saying either of these things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world of in-between. What's he saying? <clears throat> he says if Jesus Christ isn't just a good guy or a wonderful teacher, but if he's the very glory of God, he's ultimate reality, that means you have to obey him. You can no longer live according to you do you. Now you have to live according to you do him. Everything in your life has to revolve around him. When God says in the midst of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
The word listen implies we need to do what he says. In other words, obey. What we know is if Jesus Christ really is ultimate reality, if Jesus really is the glory of God in the flesh, then you can't just have him on the periphery of your life. He has to be the reason you get up in the morning. He has to be the thing that everything in your life revolves around. He has to be the axis on which everything turns. He has to be your absolute Lord. You can't just like Jesus. You can't just say, well, I wish I were a better Christian, but I do believe. What he's saying is you need to be all in when it comes to Christ. So that's the first thing, obey. The second thing is worship, worship him. The word glory means importance, but it also means beauty. If you go to parts of the Old Testament to talk about his glory, there's always colors. There's rainbows, there's sparks, there's lights. It's getting across this idea that we all seek beauty. Now you seeking beauty may look at landscapes or artwork or a beautiful face. I've said for years that babies and brides are beautiful by definition. But they pale in comparison because ultimate beauty is found in the glory of God. There's nothing more beautiful than that. When you see his beauty, the beauty of what he did, the beauty of who he is, the motivation for the Christian life is no longer just duty. It's desire, it's joy, it's gratitude for what he's done. And that's why we worship him. That's why you're watching this today. You want to worship. So obey, worship, and third thing is to be patient. They had just seen Elijah on the mountain. So they started asking, wait a minute, if you're the Messiah, who's the Elijah who's supposed to come? Was that him? And Jesus says, no, John the Baptist is the second Elijah but he was killed, and I'm going to be killed. It's dark. It's very dark. Up on the mountain, briefly, the shutter opened, and there was light. But now everything's gone dark again. Why? Because Christ's glory is hidden. And yet it's still at work, isn't it? Even in the darkness, even in the weakness, even when everything's gone wrong, he's working. I mean, he saved us. He saved you. He saved me. And I think this is a way of saying that if your life is filled with darkness, and if everything seems to be going downhill, in spite of appearances, there's glory at work. If you belong to him and trust in him, there's glory at work. His glory is at work even if on the outside everything looks dark and dreary. Be patient, because when you know Jesus and he's in your life, there's always more to life than meets the eye. Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want, the world we were made for, a world of glory and perfection, a world not marred by sin, the world we all want is coming. Years later, Peter and John would write about what they saw that day. <clears throat> Peter would later write in 2 Peter chapter 1, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And one day, many years later, a very elderly Apostle John would testify. John chapter 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later in John 1, he says, And the world became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. James was the only one of the three who didn't record the event. Maybe he intended to, but he was the first of the twelve to be martyred, and his life was cut short. Although he didn't write about this intense moment, it surely made an indelible impression on him and most likely sustained him during his own suffering and death. That day on the mountain, the disciples saw Jesus in a way they had never seen him before. Before that day, they saw themselves on a fast camel bound for glory. What they didn't see was that the road to glory passed through the tunnel of suffering. Jesus asked his disciples then and now to follow him through that tunnel which connected this life to the next. They would have to stoop to enter, and they would have to leave everything behind to squeeze through that narrow opening. And that's where the transfiguration fits in. It is, quite literally, the light at the end of the tunnel. A glimpse of his glory on the other side. And the way to that glory is not around suffering, but through it. And joy is found in the journey to that destination, but not on a detour, not on any detour. It'll be the reward of not only being with Christ, but sharing his glory that'll give the disciples the strength to crawl through that tunnel. So dazzling was the reward that whatever they had to go through, whatever they had to leave behind, paled in comparison. But to share Christ's glory means we have to first share his suffering. And trust me on this, you will suffer. You may not suffer persecution, you may not suffer humiliation, but you will suffer. At the very least, you will suffer death. And who knows when that might be? It might not be for years. With the coronavirus, it might be next month. Death waits for no one, and I've now buried more than my fair share of people younger than me. You may live a long time with few worries, and then have to suffer through old age. It's hard to be the very elderly when your body breaks down and your mind drifts away. That's real suffering. Suffering doesn't come into our lives by majority vote. It's part of our reality. It was part of Jesus' reality. And he wants us to know that the cross comes before the crown and the humiliation before the exaltation. And though Peter often uh, said and did dumb things, he did listen that day on the mountain. Years later, he wrote to those who were as confused as he once was, regarding the role suffering plays in the process of redemption. And he said in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's the message of the transfiguration that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The transfiguration is not just another cool miracle to convince the disciples of Jesus' divinity. It's an experience of revealed glory that they're going to need for the dark days and hard times ahead. Jesus reveals his glory to them and to us so that we would know that denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus is not a burden. So we would know that losing your life for his sake is not a chore, because Jesus himself embodies the glory of God. But then he gave up that glory so that we might see it 
and live. And that's why you no longer live according to you do you. And that's why we now live according to you do him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Our Lord, help us to be those who see and understand. Help us to be those who hear and obey. Help us to be those who listen and follow. May your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Teach us how to obey your Son, worship your Son, and trust your Son, even in these dark and uncertain times so that more and more your glory can come into our lives and transform us. We pray, Lord, that you would conform our lives into the image of your Son, who did all of this for us. And so, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day, anyone who watches this video, anyone who hears these words, not trusting in Christ, we would ask that by your Spirit that you would draw that person to yourself, that they might embrace the beloved Son. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.